Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. It's amazing to think that someone who didn't know how to ice skate could have such a profound impact on the sport of hockey. A guy who never even saw the sport until he was in his 30s. A guy whose main concern was representing the homeland and his queen to the best of his ability. Frederick Arthur Stanley was sent abroad to serve Queen Victoria as Governor General of Canada. And while his contributions were many, there is no doubt his biggest contribution was that of a sterling silver cup that now sits atop the oldest and perhaps the most cherished trophy in North America, the Stanley Cup. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of Lord Stanley. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome again to Sports Forgotten Heroes, and today, something a little different. The story of a man who didn't play the game, but whose legacy is very much a part of the fabric of one of North America's four major sports, Frederick Arthur Stanley, the Earl of Derby, also known as Lord Stanley. Now, I know many of you have heard of Lord Stanley and know that the Stanley Cup bears his name. But why? Why does it bear his name? What is his connection to the game? Why did he decide to donate a sterling silver cup to the champion of a sport he was so unfamiliar with? A sport he had never played and a sport he knew hardly anything about. Well, joining us in just a moment will be one of hockey's foremost authorities and authors and a previous guest on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Kevin Shea. Kevin also co-authored a book about Frederick Arthur Stanley called Lord Stanley, The Man Behind the Cup. And it is, without a doubt, the most detailed account of Lord Stanley ever written. It traces Lord Stanley from his early days in the UK, to his assignment of Governor General of Canada and his journey back to the UK after his term was done. And of course, so much more, including the birth of one of the most cherished trophies in all of sport, the Stanley Cup. Now, before we get to Kevin, however, just a little housekeeping. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook, or check us out on the web at SportsFH.com. There, you can read more about our guests, more about the heroes we talk about, and we have links to videos about our Forgotten Heroes as well. That's SportsFH.com. And please, if you get a moment, Write a review about Sports Forgotten Heroes and post it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You'd be surprised just how much it means. Just make sure it's good. (laughs) Or at least give us a five-star rating. I can't thank everyone enough who has done so already. Now, back to Lord Stanley. He came to Canada in 1888 and stayed until 1893. While it's difficult to pinpoint his most noteworthy achievement outside of donating what was once known as the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup and is now known as the Stanley Cup, he did help to make British Columbia a part of Canada instead of a part of the U.S. And Kevin Shea touches upon that in our conversation. And Stanley's wife, 
the Lady Constance Villiers founded the Lady Stanley Institute for Trained Nurses, which was the first nursing school in Ottawa. But it was his contribution to the game of hockey that has had the biggest impact of all. And here to tell us more about Lord Stanley is the terrific author of so many books on hockey, particularly his beloved Toronto Maple Leafs, Kevin Shea, who co-wrote the book, Lord Stanley, The Man Behind the Cup. Kevin, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'm so glad you would join me once again. Well, I'm delighted to join you anytime, and thank you very much for asking me. This is wonderful. Thank you. Hey, so without a doubt, your passion for hockey is second to none. And when it comes to your beloved Toronto Maple Leafs, I can only imagine what it would be like to see your Leafs hoist the Stanley Cup for the first time since, I think, 1967. And that's what I'd like to well, you're talk spot about. on with the year. And, you know, as a very young boy, I got to see four Stanley Cup championships during the 1960s. It was the, uh, the final years of the original six era that is so beloved to so many hockey fans. Sure. And that one in 1967 was the conclusion, the very final game of, of the original six era. So I was a little bit older. I was 11 years old when that, uh, that Stanley Cup championship was won. And since then, they still are my beloved Leafs. You're right about that. But I've I've seen the 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 lean, the mean, uh, and everything in between. I guess I should say too. I mean, we've had some good years. A uh, couple of years where they went to the conference finals. The 1993-94 years. Later in the beginning of the 2000s, I've seen some terrible times. Uh, you know, the yeah. Ballard years were not good to the Leafs, and well. He wasn't good to the Leafs either, uh, but we see a little bit of a turnaround now, and so there's a glimmer of hope. So, hey, we'll see what happens. But boy, if the Stanley Cup ever arrives back here through the uh, the winning of uh, with through the Leafs winning it, this city will be electric. They are so hungry for a championship and are so devoted to this hockey team. So, fingers crossed for Leaf fans, and we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And, you know, what I'd like to talk to you about today is the Stanley Cup, but in a in a different way. It's by far the oldest trophy awarded in team sports. And you wrote a book about the man who got the whole thing started, Frederick Arthur Stanley, or Lord Stanley, the Earl of Derby. So here's my first question. Who the heck was the Earl of Derby? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. And, and you know, you wonder how a guy who's, for the most part, long forgotten in the history books or from the history books has uh, gone on to, to great fame as the donor of the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I have to, have to tell you a funny story. Uh, my dear mom, who's, who's recently departed, but the very first book I ever wrote was in the year 2000, and there was a a little launch party for it. And uh, one of the people there was, was Alan Stanley, the former Bruin and Ranger and flyer mm-hmm. and certainly Maple Leaf as well. And, and uh, so I guess he played for the Hawks too. When I think about it anyway, he, <laughs> um, he was there and my mom went up and, and gave him a big hug and said, thank you so much for donating your trophy to hockey. It's meant so much to fans like ours. Well, he laughed and said, well, you're not the first one to say that, but I wasn't the one who donated it. It actually goes back much longer, uh, much, much further than that. So Lord Stanley was the son of the Lord Mayor of London, England. Mm-hmm. And so he came from a, a very, very esteemed family, a, a well-renowned family, uh, like his, his brother, like his father, he went into the military and got an education that way and was uh, was living a life of privilege, but also looked towards a life of, of political as well, of uh, political status as well. Mm-hmm. And he became an aide to Queen Victoria, who was the queen at that time and, and a close friend of the Stanley family. One of the first things that, uh, that happened for, for Lord Stanley, and uh, so Canada wasn't I'm stepping back a little bit. Canada wasn't unknown to the Stanley family because because uh, Lord Stanley's father had actually been I forget the actual title, but he oversaw the colonies 
including mm-hmm. Canada for England at the time. So he had made a few forays over here. So anybody who's traveled through Ontario knows of a place called Port Stanley, and that was named after Lord Stanley's father, not Lord mm-hmm. Stanley himself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Lord Stanley uh, is an aide to Queen Victoria. He he comes from this privileged family. And when the the Governor General of Canada, who's the Queen's representative, or the, the monarch's representative, uh, I should say, to Canada um, from England, when, they, when the previous Governor General was gone, he was appointed the Governor General of Canada. So in 1888, Lord Stanley of, uh, uh, of Preston decides, not decides, he's appointed the, uh, the Governor General of Canada. Well, it was quite a, a change for our dear Lord Stanley. At that point, I think he may have had eight children mm-hmm. still alive and, mm-hmm. and uh, loaded, loaded the, uh, the, the ship to come over along with their wonderful furnishings and everything. And they arrived in Canada and uh, found their residence. And, and boy, oh boy, it wasn't at all like they were used to living. It was much more Spartan mm. and uh, much more roughshod than he was used to. And they didn't know if they even wanted to stay here. And both Lord Stanley and his wife um, were wondering whether this is the kind of life that they wanted to live. It was also a bit of a shock for them, too. They came from a background of playing uh, playing cricket, playing yes, to some degree rugby, but not all that often, mm-hmm. uh, playing football, as they would call it, soccer that we would call it, came to Canada, and those games were not particularly popular here at all. And It was new things. It was tobogganing. It was was uh, was certainly hockey as well. And so these were new games, very strange games that uh, that the, the Stanley family became involved in. Well, they didn't get involved in, but at least they got accustomed to at that point or introduced to, I guess maybe I should say. So during the, uh, during the, the Montreal Winter Fair in 1889, um, they, the, the royal family, the, the vice regal family was invited to preside over the Winter Fair and they went and one of the games that they, they were going to be introduced to was hockey. Well, they knew so little about it. So mm-hmm. then when the family arrived, they walked right across the ice to the seats that uh, were being kept for them. They had no idea that, in fact, they were interrupting a hockey game at the time. <laughs> but as they did, both both the teams stopped. The band that was on location at the time played God Save the Queen, and uh, they shuffled across the ice to their to their seats, made themselves at home, and watched the hockey game. Interesting because Lord Stanley and Lady Stanley both quite enjoyed themselves, but it was the kids, three of the kids who who joined them that day, uh, who fell in love with the game. And right. that's really the reason behind the Stanley Cup. It was the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they fell in love with it so much that they, when they went back to Ottawa, which is where their residence was, their primary residence was, they started to play hockey themselves. So Lady Isabel Stanley is, the, is well known or at least acknowledged as the first woman to play hockey. She got a number of what we would today call executive assistants, but back then they called secretaries from Parliament Hill to join her at the rink that was at Rideau Hall. And, uh, and they put on, uh, put on their skates and played with these long dresses that went down to their mm. ankles and, mm. you know, the whole bit. Kind of a rudimentary game, but they all played that way. Two of the boys also got heavily involved. Albert was the primary one, and and he put a team together, and it was called the Rito Rebels. And it actually became quite a good team. There were several players on it who were very, very good at the game, and they were so fortunate to have an opportunity to travel to other cities. So because the cars weren't invented yet, but they were able to use the vice regal train. Hey, Dad, can I borrow the train? Yeah, yeah, sure. You and the boys, you be careful out there. You know. <laughs> They traveled by train to Lindsay, Ontario, to Toronto, Ontario, to Kingston, Ontario, and they were able to play against other cities where where hockey was still just a, a fledgling sport, mm-hmm. but it helped fuel interest in the sport in in uh, the eastern parts of Canada, certainly in the uh, province of Ontario, and uh, that's really kind of where it started. So the kids all bugged Dad mm-hmm. over and over again. Come on, why don't you donate a trophy for hockey? And uh, finally, Lord Stanley said, "Well." We can do that for sure. So they made an announcement at a at a hockey team dinner, the the Ottawa Hockey Club, and uh, in fact, Lord Stanley was at a curling uh, bond spiel at that time, so it wasn't even him; it was one of his aides. But they they made the commitment to donating a cup, 
one of his aides who went over to England, purchased what we see as the top of the Stanley Cup right, right now, basically a Rose Bowl, and uh, they brought that back, and uh, and that ended up being the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. trivia is that nowhere on the trophy does it say Stanley Cup. In fact, the official name is the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. Right. And on the other side, it uh, it has the family crest and uh, donated by Lord Stanley of Preston. But uh, Lord Stanley had, by by 1893, he had gone back to England. And uh, the very first time the trophy was donated, uh, was the trophy was committed to in 1892, but the first time that there was a champion was 1893. So he never did even see the Stanley Cup being uh, donated, or not donated, but being presented to the championship hockey team at the time. So very fledgling roots for the Stanley Cup, but today it's, as you said, the the most glorious and, and most wondrous uh, trophy in, in uh, team sports and certainly one that all hockey fans are very, very well aware of. Mm-hmm. You know, the book, Lord Stanley, The Man Behind the Cup, it is extraordinarily detailed. I got to ask, how long did it take you to write? Wow. <laughs> Well, so I didn't do it alone. I had a partner by the name of Jason Wilson. Right. I knew that I was uh, going to be fine with the hockey side of things, and I was able to get hold of his wife's diary. They crossed the country by train in the early part of their, I'll call it reign in Canada, and I was able to get hold of her diary, which was just phenomenal to read, and it chronicled all of the stops that they made across Canada and the speeches that they made and the great adventures that they got into so I knew that I was good for much of the book, but Jason Wilson is a is a great friend of mine, but he's also a terrific researcher, and his specialty is the early days of Canada, mm-hmm. specific to both politics and to hockey. So he came on board, too, so we collaborated on it and, and uh, wove it all together. So, I mean, there were... Lord Stanley isn't necessarily well known in the political side of things or whatever you want to call the governor general side of things, but we did find out a lot of things that he really was important in the uh, development of Canada being developed as a country, Mm -hmm, especially mm -hmm. in the western part of the country where it was pretty barren at that particular time. And so the two of us worked on it, and I'm guessing it was probably about three years. Wow. uh, Three years of intense research. We both have full-time jobs. He's a (laughs) working musician, and, uh, and I was working for a cancer research center at the time, I guess. Oh, okay. and and, uh, and so it was three very, very strenuous years of, of every evening from the time we got home until, you know, whatever, one in the morning or so, plus all weekends, doing our independent research and then weaving it all together over the course of, of many months as well. So, so a lot of work went into it. It was a, a passion project. Funny thing is, you know, I've had great fortune in, in, uh, being able to write a number of books. Number 17 is out right now. And wow. Most have been bestsellers. This is the least selling book I've got. And yet it's, been, it's been the, uh, the one that has received the most, uh, most awards. Uh, you yeah, know, interesting. It's much more of a Canadian history book, right. but it certainly has great, uh, great hockey relevance as well. Where does the title Lord come from? It was just a, it's a family title. He, he by birth, he became a lord because his father was a lord before him, and just because of their status in in the political cir- uh, circuits in uh, in England at that time. So it was nothing more than that. He was he was by birth a lord, and uh, later on became a baron, which is another mostly ceremonial title as well. So the interesting thing is when I was doing my research, I contacted. What I thought was the the current Lord Stanley, who would have been at that point about forty years old, and he corrected me and said, "Oh no, 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 no! In fact, I'm I'm Lord Stanley the whatever he was. I can't remember off the top of my head uh-huh. uh, the fourteenth or whatever. But the the current Lord Stanley is uh, is three years old, Kevin. You know, it's like what? <laughs> oh yeah, it's my son, and he's the current Lord Stanley and whatever. So it it's just funny, but again, a ceremonial." family title because of their birth rate. When you decided to write the book about the man behind the cup, what was your, what, what did you think it would turn out to be? Was, was it going to be a book like what it is today? Or was your vision for such a book, something different? Well, both actually (laughs) really interesting question. Uh, 
So at the time I was working, I said I was working at the cancer center. In fact, it was, pre- uh, it was previous to that. I was working at the Hockey Hall of Fame full time. And so I had set up a publishing division. It was a, another, another revenue stream for the Hockey Hall of Fame mm-hmm. at the time. So I set up a publishing division. We had a publisher called Fen Publishing, no longer with us right now, but mm-hmm. uh, they've gone bankrupt since. But I set it up and, and my premise was to write books that were important books but not necessarily going to be bestsellers, all tied to honored members in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So we debated, debated it back and forth. And I mean, the books about Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull and Bobby Orr, et cetera, et cetera, are, are immense. There are so many of them and they are wonderful. It wasn't to do those kinds of books. It was more about, about honored members who hadn't been written about a great deal, but had great stories to tell. And as one of the examples I, I used with my presentation, and I'll use with you as well, is the story of Peter Stastny's, uh, his, his whole leaving communist Europe mm-hmm. to come to North America to be a member of the Quebec Nordique is a fascinating story. And he it's came with his brothers, problem. too, right? He came with right, uh, exactly. uh, Anton and exactly. Mary. And they I had think. to come under cover of night. Right. And it was a real clandestine sort of operation just to play hockey. They put the family in danger, uh, those that were left behind. He put his own career and life in danger as well. So it was those kinds of books that I envisioned being part of this. So, you know, certainly we wanted to make some money, but it wasn't trying to get the blockbusters. It was trying to chronicle the history of honored members who people didn't know a great deal about. And uh, so, so Fenn Publishing and the Hockey Hall of Fame all really liked the idea uh, so we decided to start with Lord Stanley just because this, he's the root of – he's not the root of all hockey by any means. But when you think about hockey, it's, it's closely entwined with the Stanley Cup. Sure. And we don't know anything or very, very much at, at, at most about this man who donated the Cup and his role in hockey's history. So I thought we would start with that one and move forward. My thought was we would tell some of the the political and military history but mostly the hockey story. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it became much, much more than that. It yeah. became all-encompassing. We figured if, if we have one shot to tell this man's story, we better tell the complete story. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it took so long to, to complete, and uh, that's why it is what it is. So the hockey part is, and I'm being liberal with this, but is maybe one quarter of the book, sure. whereas the other parts of his life and career take up the rest of it as well which was an interesting challenge for the marketing department of the publisher. They didn't know whether to market it as a hockey book, which was my intent, or market it as a Canadian history book, which <laughs> is where they felt would have the, uh, the most impact. And so it kind of fell between the cracks to some degree, although it did very well, as I mentioned. And, and uh, for those who took the time to read it, and even parts of it, there's quite a story to be told there. So, so you know, the, the historians got their feed and their fix, and the hockey people got theirs as well. So, I mean, it sold 5,000 copies, which in Canada is considered a bestseller for hockey books. So it it wasn't – I may have given the impression that it was a, a bust, and it wasn't at all. It's just that, that uh, hockey books with names like, you know, Sanderson and Barilko and things like that have sold a great deal more because the names are much more familiar sure. and, and the sure. stories are – are much more familiar too. Sure. And and for us it's a unique topic to cover here on Sports Forgotten Heroes, but at a great mm-hmm. time, we're in the hockey season. What did Absolutely. you find most fascinating about him while you were researching? Well, so as much as his name is so intrinsically tied to hockey, his interest was I'll, I'll say minimal at best. He enjoyed hockey. He would go to some games but it really was through the impetus of his children. Mm-hmm. And even now there's an Elizabeth Stanley cup for women's hockey. Yeah. You're just representing her role in, in, in advancing the game at that point. Um, one of the sons went on to, to be one of the people who started the Ontario hockey association, which today is the OHL and, and uh, one of the great feeder leagues to, uh, to get prospects for the national hockey league as well. So, they played a, a really intrinsic role in hockey's development. I'm talking about the kids did. Um, Lord Stanley himself was prodded to do it by his kids. Very happy to donate a trophy. It was, 
it was one of many that uh, that Lord Stanley, not many, one of several that Lord Stanley donated at, to various things. Rifle competitions in Winnipeg have a, a Lord Stanley Cup, and mm. you know there's gardening trophies that have a Lord Stanley Cup and curling <laughs> trophies. So there are other other Stanley Cups, or you know, at least configurations of same. They don't look at all the same. They have different trophies, obviously, but the one that is has emerged as the most amazing and most popular is the one for hockey and he was a passive fan at best never saw his trophy donated um when it when it arrived so he he had an emissary pick it up as i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. not pick it up choose it in in england and then ship it over and when it arrived in canada in early 1893 uh some journalists at the time said so what do you think about your trophy and he said, well looks just like any other trophy i guess <laughs> so it was really like non-committal you would think in today's society even if they didn't think it was great it would be oh this is an amazing award for hockey and i am so proud to put my name on it but he was nonplussed at the time and there's so it's 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 somewhat ironic i guess that that uh, he wasn't a huge hockey fan he saw a handful of games but it was actually his children who right. who really uh, were the as i mentioned the impetus between behind the stanley cup and of course hockey back then isn't what it is today so the the awarding of the cup back then, while was a great thing, nothing like what it is today. Hey, um, in You're- terms of political contributions, does he have a greatest achievement as the Governor General of Canada? Well, there would be several things that I could mention. Um, at the time, British Columbia our most westerly province in Canada was betwixt and between whether they were going to join the United States or whether they were going to be part of Canada. And part of their negotiation was insisting that uh, an east-west or west-east railway be built at that time. So that was prior to Stanley's being there, but he really, really was key in making sure that British Columbia was part of Canada's dominion at Mm -hmm. the time. And uh, traveled with his wife, as I mentioned, out to uh, across the country and stopped in every little whistle stop in every city along the way and gave these wonderful speeches and had had uh, wonderful, um, I'll call them parties, whatever you want to call them, um, for him as he went. When he got to B.C., um, he opened, he was, again, it's a ceremonial thing, but Stanley Park, which is an incredible uh, park in, in Vancouver, was named after him, and there's a lovely trophy, not a trophy, sorry, a lovely statue there as well. Um, so he really did help open up uh, immigration, emigration from Europe, immigrating into Canada and uh, getting settlers to, to uh, especially into places like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, that were, were largely unsettled or were indigenous communities at that time, getting them to come here uh, to to clear the land, to build homes, which became cities, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a big part of it. He and Sir John A. Macdonald, who was Canada's first prime minister, somewhat equivalent to a, a president, uh, were great friends. And he was, uh, at, he, he was at, with Sir John A. Macdonald on his deathbed on Sir John mm. A. Macdonald's deathbed as well, and he had to name the next prime minister. And so, you know, that was his role, the early days of, of Canada's uh, sovereignty as well. Uh, there are several things. Uh, there, were, there were great battles with, with language and with, with indigenous um, people as well, and he helped calm the waters at that point. No different. Here we are, what, 150 years later, and yeah. And it's very little different today, rises its uh, ugly head again in different yep. times. But yep. he, he helped settle it down at that particular time and and uh, made it a welcoming place for indigenous communities, made it welcoming for uh, the Francophone communities to not only be in Quebec, but to extend into other parts of Canada. So so uh, the Métis are a big part of, of especially in uh, Manitoba, the the uh, the middlemost province of Canada as well. So those are probably the the biggest thing. But I have to tell you, uh, he, you know, Lord Stanley didn't like to work particularly hard, mm. and he liked to disappear in the summer. So he had a lovely place in New Brunswick where he could uh, fish for salmon and where nobody could communicate with him. There were times where he was really needed, both by Queen Victoria in England and by the 
the the uh, key members of of his staff in in Canada, where they had to travel to New Brunswick to get him because he was incommunicado. He was yeah. relaxing in his uh, his. It's not a, an estate by any means, but it was a lovely summer home, uh, and he could fish and relax with his family and. He would invite uh, guests up, including people like Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone or whatever. So there were so many great little stories about him, important things and other other sides of things as well. And it's all part of the lore of Lord Stanley. Was it an honor to be sent abroad to fulfill such a role? Oh, it absolutely was. Absolutely was, because it, it was... I mean, Canada was at the time was just one of the uh, the various territories that uh, were being governed by the United Kingdom, by mm-hmm. England at that time. And of course, there was India and Hong Kong, and you know, you name it. There was it was the empire, and it was a, and right. Canada was a large part of the United Kingdom's empire at that point of the British Empire, I guess I should say, and so. So because his father had gone before and uh, had come back with wonderful stories about the colony that uh, we came to know as the Dominion of Canada, uh, it was a great honor for him as well to be hand-selected by Queen Victoria, who could have chosen any number of people, but but he was the one who was chosen. I don't know that he relished it so much once he got here. Like I said, he he was expecting it to be every bit as lavish as his life in Mm -hmm. England had been, but... um, but he came to embrace it. He came to love the Canadian culture. He came to love the Canadian people. He was loved by the people. So he would show up for ceremonial things like the opening of the, of the Canadian national exhibition in Toronto and the other exhibitions in other places across the country. And, and he would be welcomed and adorned and be, be feted and cheered just because of his title and who he was. But he, he quite enjoyed that. And people seemed to quite like him too. He he was a politician or not really a politician, but he was a dignitary for the people. And so he seemed to like that. Uh, I mentioned some of the things he, he enjoyed watching hockey, but he really loved things like tobogganing. He set Mm -hmm. up acting studios for his family and others as well, really got into the community, especially in, in Ottawa proper. So he enjoyed his time here, but uh, his just towards the end of his term, I guess I should say, his brother passed away. Mm. And it, again, it was a ceremonial title. He became the Baron, Baron Preston of, of uh, Preston. Sorry, Baron Stanley of Preston is what I should say. Sorry, uh, just by family birthright as well. He had to return to Liverpool where his brother had lived and where the family estate was. And uh, so he he left just before his time in Canada was over. So that's one of the reasons he missed out on the uh, the Stanley Cup championship as well. But not well remembered, not not landmark decisions, not mm-hmm. things that you can hang your hat on and say what a an amazing or what an awful dignitary he turned out to be. He was just good and steady and had some definite highlights as part of his five years in Canada. And I think, I, I don't know if this is a stretch, but it was... Well, I guess you said it wasn't everything he thought it would be. But one thing I think that it ended up being for him was a place to grow stronger and closer with his family. And and by that, I mean, it provided he and his family an opportunity to grow closer, did it? I mean, after all, he and his wife were separated a lot during their early years. You're spot on. That's a great observation and one that I hadn't even thought about. Part of it was the age of the children. They were uh, there were some older children who were in their well into their twenties at that time. But but the span of the ten children, eight of who survived past childhood, uh, ranged from you know, toddlers up to the twenties. So dear Lady Stanley had been a a very busy lady with uh, with childbirth, which was not uncommon at that uh, in that era as well. But because they were of that age. They, there was an opportunity for Lord and Lady Stanley to to really get close to the family in doing things like the acting studio that I mentioned, to do these winter sports that were so exciting to the children. I mean, there's not a lot of snow in England, and, and to come to a, a place like Canada and a city like Ottawa, where there are three, four, five months of, of, uh, of snow, especially during the 1880s and 1890s, was a great time to be a family and really enjoy the the uh, the trappings that come with being a dignitary and to enjoy the the uh, the joys 
of winter and summer sports. As I mentioned, he he loved going to his summer home and and fishing and and uh, just kind of taking things easy, things that he wouldn't have a chance to do when he was in England. So it was a chance for him and the family to to really enjoy themselves and 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 become aware of a, a place that they really would have had very little awareness of other than what their dad had told them, what uh, Lord Stanley's father had told him on his time here, although he hadn't been the, uh, I'm trying to remember his actual title, but anyway, he, the, the, I'll call it deputy of the colonies, it's certainly not the title, but uh, he wouldn't have had a whole lot of time to do those same things. He was mm-hmm. traveling back and forth, whereas Stanley was here with his family. He traveled with them across the country and gave them a chance to see sights and sounds that they never would have seen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. hunting fishing meeting people of all all denominations all all colors all creeds all you know you name it so again it was a great opportunity for them to grow grow close together and they were a very close family as well in fact that of all of the things you know we think of the stanley cup we think of being governor general if there's anything that uh, that lord stanley should be remembered for it's just being a, a person for the people and certainly a, a great family man mm-hmm. of course i think at the time hockey i'm guessing was not canada's national sport wasn't it more something like lacrosse or or yeah yeah you know yeah. what I was mean, the, hockey was yeah. really really a fledgling sport the the very first documented game was 1875 in Montreal. So we, you know, hockey was, by the time he came to Canada in 1888, it was really just, uh, just fairly new. The game was being played in some markets, Halifax and, and areas of, of Nova Scotia. It was being played by, uh, by students in Montreal. Um, but it was just very slow to head, head west from there. It came into, uh, into Ontario. Toronto was a latecomer to the the game of hockey was much more prevalent in in the Ottawa area and, and communities like Renfrew and places like that that are part of the Ottawa Valley. It didn't uh, didn't move on to certainly to places like Vancouver until the Patrick brothers, Lester and Frank, and uh, moved out there with their family uh, back in, in the turn of this of the previous century. Of, sorry, of our previous uh, mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. So. It was very slow to to go. It really was a game mostly for for white male students, uh, university students. Hmm. Uh, that was pretty much the game. That was the access. Those were the people who had had access to ice to play the game. Started at Halifax and drifted to slowly west from there. Um, you know, and Isabel, like I said, had uh, been instrumental in women's hockey too. Right. But it was such an early game. Rules were. I think there were probably 13 rules at the time. They were called the Halifax rules. You know, now we've got 300 pages of them. <laughs> they had 13 rules at the time. And, you know, but it was just, it was more of a, a pastime than a real active sport, but it was becoming very competitive. It was all amateur at the time. There was no professional right. sports until again, the 1910s and twenties when it started to eke in there. It was just a, a great opportunity for people to get out and, and uh, enjoy themselves while the ice was still, uh, still prevalent. There was no artificial ice at the time either. And you said that his daughter, uh, Lady Isabel, she really took a liking to it. I think two of his sons took a really big liking to it as well. Did he ever try it or was it just Lady Isabel and his, his couple of sons? And um, uh, uh, and he sort of like stayed away until they said, well, donate a cup. I could never find any anything that had him on skates ever. You know, most of us, even if our, our parents weren't, were, you know, so my, my dad was a pretty good hockey player, but my mom certainly wasn't. But, you know, we, we convinced her to put on a pair of skates and hold a hockey stick and she would do her best to stand and swat <laughs> at it. You know, even you'd think of something like that. Come on, dad, you got to try it. But we could find no, nothing in newspaper accounts, in journals or anything that chronicled Lord Stanley ever trying the game. He did attend games, like I said, and his favorite team was the Ottawa Hockey Cup, uh, Ottawa Hockey Club, rather. But it was his sons, for sure. Two that were heavily involved with the organization, but even the younger ones, who would have been, I'm guessing, 11 or 12 at the time, were very, very good hockey players. Just a little bit too young to get too involved in the organization of it. Uh, the ones that were in their late teens and early 20s were the ones who really propelled the sport forward. So. So yeah, the kids were the the uh, the propulsion for 
for hockey in the Ottawa area, but, uh, but we can't find anything about Lord or Lady Stanley ever having tried to skate. Having said that, there was a, a rink that was built at Rideau Hall. Mm-hmm. So there was something called the Rideau Rink, which is where hockey was played, but there was the Rideau Hall Rink, not to be confused, and it was built at Rideau Hall, which was the primary residence of the Stanleys. And even for them to, to glide across the ice or put on their kids' skates or even shuffle across the ice, other than, like I said, at the Montreal Winter Fair that year, um, never took place that we were, we're aware of, but the kids got a chance to play and really develop their skills there before they got involved with the actual teams too. So they had their own rink. It's the oldest rink in, in uh, Canada. Every year it gets made one more time and, and uh, it's got the boards and a little shack at the side to warm up and have a hot chocolate, which they would have had at the time too, probably with Lord Stanley slipping some brandy into it or something as well. <laughs> so but, so it uh, still yeah, exists we, today? It still exists today? Yeah, it still exists today. The wow. shack has been uh, been redone many times through the mm-hmm. years, but the rink is made every year on the exact same spot that, that Lord Stanley and even his predecessor would have had the uh, the rink at the time. So wow. yeah, quite a historic wow. rink too. Now you mentioned Lady Isabel before. Did I read that there is a Isabel Cup? Yeah, there is. For the uh, the National Women's Hockey League have the the uh, the Lady Isabel Stanley Trophy. I'm not sure if that's the official name or whether it's Cup. The Lady Isabel Stanley Cup seems to me the the name of the cup, but it's uh, it's for the top scorer in the league, as I recall. And it's to commemorate her role in advancing women's hockey. Wow, you know, of yeah. course, it, 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 their connection, their connection to hockey for a family that's not Canadian, for a family that's not American, uh, for a fa- right. to, for a family that is from a country that really doesn't have much representation in the National Hockey League is actually quite amazing. Well, it is. And, and, you know, you would have thought their enthusiasm for the game would have translated to a better degree once they went back to England. Uh, and they all did it. Uh, you know, when, when dad went back, when Lord Stanley went back to become Baron Stanley of Preston, uh, the kids went back too. several of them were already there going to school, whatever it happened to be. But those that were living in Canada returned as well. Now, because they love the game, you would have thought that they would introduce it to friends and, and colleagues, whether it was a lack of ice, whether you know political or, or dignitary duties kept them away from it, whether their excitement fell on deaf ears. Tough to say. I mean, there seems to be a dotted line connection to, uh, to early hockey history from England to Canada that we weren't necessarily aware of. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it was, you know, Bandy and Hurley and these various games that kind of morphed into the game of hockey when the military brought it to places like Halifax in Canada. So, so but it just doesn't seem to have, have taken hold there. So, I mean, there's great stories of you know, St- Steve Thomas, who played with a number of teams in the National Hockey League, being born in England and, you know, Owen Nolan having been born in Ireland, mm-hmm, and, but mm-hmm. it's it, it, not like it flourished there. It's not like there are a great number of people immigrating to North America to play in the National Hockey League from from uh, from England and or the British Isles. Unfortunate and inexplicable to me at this point, but it might be the length of the season. It might be that other games that are like, like cricket and, and uh, rugby and football, soccer are much more prevalent and hockey is just kind of an after ran for expats who, right, who moved right. from Canada and the U S over to England. Not, not sure why. Wish I, wish I had a better story for you, but I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> One thing that I, I had trouble um, understanding is this in the early days when the cup, after the cup had been donated, if a club or team challenged the club or team that was in possession of the cup, Whomever won the challenge would gain possession of the cup. Was there any amount of time in which a team could hold on to the cup before having to accept the challenge? Was it a yearly thing? Or, in other words, I win the cup today and I receive a challenge next week. Do I have to take that challenge on? How, how did that work? Well, I wish I could explain it better. It was a most confusing sort of thing. So, 
when the cup was was donated by Lord Stanley, he put two trustees in charge of it at the time. He didn't really want to be all that involved, so he put two people who were were far more uh, involved with the game to make all the decisions. And at the time, it was a Challenge Cup, which is actually its name, as I mentioned earlier, the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. Mm-hmm. So you could win the trophy, and you're right. The tr- if if somebody wanted to challenge for the cup, and the trustees said, "Yep, it's approved." move it forward and it'll take place in this location or that location, whatever you could have the cup for a matter of weeks or months and, uh, and then have to challenge for it again, or even lose the cup at that point. And so that's why there were several times through the course of those early years, especially in the 1910s, 19 aughts and 1910s mm-hmm. where the Stanley cup was won two and three times through the course of a year. Wow. So yeah, it very, very confusing for us. And there are some who would argue that, there were more, there were more Stanley Cup champions than we know. That uh, <laughs> that there were so many of these sort of challenges going on at the time. I'm so thankful. I think all of hockey is so thankful too that it's gone into the format that we know today, where you know certainly there's playoffs and uh, and there's one champion right. for the year. Um, but yeah, there was two, three, like I said, uh, each year. Uh, you know. There was no no finite amount of time that you could celebrate with it. You, it all depended on how long the ice was going to be there. So that's that's part of the uh, the difficulties. I mean, if the ice was starting to melt in April, May, perhaps, mm-hmm. so there'd be no more challenges again until the following December, in all likelihood. So there would be a few months where one team could hold on to the cup for a while, but it was out of out of necessity, not out of uh, lack of challenges or anything that was uh, ruled appropriate mm-hmm. for a length of time. Mm-hmm. Now, the way I understand it, there's still um, there's three Stanley Cups. The original bowl of the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup, the cup that's used for the presentation to the NHL champion, and the permanent cup, which is on display at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Is there any part? Is there any part of the cup that's awarded today that is actually a part of the original cup? Is there anything original about it today? Man, you've got. To, first of all, your homework is great, and secondly, your <laughs> questions are terrific too. No, <laughs> there's not. Uh, the original bowl that that Lord Stanley donated was, like I mentioned, a, a rose bowl, and uh, yeah, so it was whatever it would have been. I'm guessing not even two feet in, in height or well, less than that for sure. Probably more like 18 inches in height, lovely, uh, loveling sterling, lovely, rather sterling silver bowl. And uh, so through the years, you know, as teams wanted to add their name to it and sometimes add players names, there was no, no designation for what went on or didn't go on. Um, they would add bands underneath it. So the cup grew through the wow. years but through the years as well, the, the trophy became somewhat fragile. Not, not any kind of precarious situation, but became fragile enough that it was, was retired permanently to the Hockey Hall of Fame. So the original bowl is, is in the great vault of the great hall at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And that's the one that Lord Stanley donated, and it's on a nice ebony base, which mm-hmm. isn't the base that was on it originally, but it, through the years it was added and, and makes for a nice trophy for sure. And if you look carefully, you can see people have carved their names into it through the years, hockey players and others as well. So that that uh, trophy was replaced, as you mentioned, with the Presentation Cup. And that's the, really the, I'll call it the genuine cup, as it were. Mm-hmm. That's the one that that is presented to teams by the president in the olden days or older days, rather and commissioner, commissioner right. Gary Bettman right now. And that trophy is the presentation cup. And, um, and that's the one that uh, also travels to teams through the course of the season as well. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, the Washington capitals had the presentation cup and each player got it for at least a day and got a chance to celebrate in their own way. The, the second version is what we call it. The second version is the trophy that is on display at the Hockey Hall of Fame when the Presentation Cup is touring. Uh-huh. So that, that cup, the Presentation Cup, probably tours, I'm guessing, in the area of 200 days a year. Wow. When it's on the road, people who are visiting the Hockey Hall of Fame have been, in the past, have been disappointed that they came to see the Stanley Cup and all there was was a, a sign on the stand saying the Stanley Cup is on tour right now or whatever. So a second version was made. It's it's virtually an identical uh, trophy. In fact, 
you know, I've been around the Stanley Cup a fair bit, and there's only a couple of clues as to uh, as to which one is which. Hmm. But that's the second version. That's on the in the Hockey Hall of Fame when the Presentation Cup is not in Toronto. One of the cool things about the Stanley Cup, and I guess the only trophy that would even come close is the trophy that you get if you win the World Series in baseball. You have the flags, the pennants, and I believe on each pennant on the trophy is the name of the teams that are in baseball. So every team name is actually on the trophy. The Stanley Cup has taken that a step further. When did engraving a team's name onto the cup come about and then engraving the names of all the players from the winning team onto the cup? Well, again, a great question, and I don't necessarily have a, a great answer for you. It, was, it started unofficially. Um, originally with the cup that Lord Stanley donated, I mean, there was even some, some argument the very, very first time a team called the Montreal hockey club was the first recipient of the Stanley cup, 1893, but they were under the umbrella of a larger sporting organization called the Montreal amateur athletic association, MAAA. And so, so the, the first engraving said, uh, MAAA, 1893, MAAA. Huh. Well, the Montreal Hockey Club said, wait a minute, they didn't win it. Our hockey club won it. And so they refused to accept the Stanley Cup in 1893. They didn't get it until 1894. Oh, interesting. Because it, they, they refused to accept it if it said uh, Montreal Amateur Athletic Association. So it started that way. But as teams got a chance to win the Cup, you know, it was mostly kept with the trustees in the early days or it was kept at the president's office or whatever it happened to be. But there was access to it through the team championships and things of that sort. So players and friends of players would carve their names into the Stanley Cup. So it was very unofficial. But if you look carefully, especially at the uh, the uh, the original Stanley Cup, you can see uh, names like Frank Boucher. He carved it with a, a pen knife or something along <laughs> that line. Yeah, you can see many names carved into it. And, and through the years, many of them have kind of been rubbed smoothly, but you can still read them clear as day, both inside the cup and on the outside of the cup too, which spawned the idea of, well, let's do it officially then. It's, rather than deface the cup, let's do it officially. So I'm sorry I don't have a, an exact answer for you because I just don't remember. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, But that's the way it started, and it probably was in the 1920s or so, and I think it was kind of hit and miss at first. Some teams did it, some teams didn't, but after a while it became became a, a template is that you wanted the individuals who were involved with the winning of the Stanley cup to have their names in the cup, not just the players, but also the executives. Right. too. And So it's become the, the great tribute to the, the game. I think this is what makes the Stanley cup so different than other trophies is that first of all, it's the, it's one trophy that is used year after year. Whereas most, uh, most sporting trophies are recreated each year, right. uh, the team that's won it the previous year gets to keep it, and they create a new one. Not the Stanley Cup. And secondly, that that uh, you know players who were on the team have their name on it. Not necessarily in perpetuity, but certainly for 60-plus years. The, the problem that's happened over the last little while is that the Stanley Cup has grown yeah, full. Yeah, big. It's big. And so, yeah, so for example... You know the the bottom the bottom row is where they usually put new team names. But once it's had its all thirteen, once it's had all of its thirteen teams engraved onto that one, they take the top top um, banner off. I'll call it banner. The uh, the band. Jeez, Kevin, think the band. Yeah, there we go. Band off. Thank you. Off. They take it and and retire it permanently into the Hockey Hall of Fame's Great Vault, where the original Stanley Cup is. They move each of the bands up one, and they add a new one on the bottom. Mm. So, so for example, there's great great discussions this year because the great dynasty of the Montreal Canadiens in the 1950s, winning the Stanley Cup from 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. Uh, those names, Maurice Richard, Jacques Plante, Doug Harvey, Butch wow. Bouchard, Dickie Moore, Elmer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. About all now have their name coming off the Stanley Cup wow. after all these years. Wow. So, yeah. So, and it's unfortunate because for many of them, including Maurice Richard, I mean, that was their, their final season, 1960. And, and, uh, 
you know, Plant went on to play elsewhere, but didn't win a Stanley Cup again after that. But these players got their names on the Stanley Cup five years in a row. They no longer will have their names on the Stanley Cup. The next time they take the the band off, which will be 13 years from now, but it'll be unless something happens in the next few years, my fingers are crossed. Uh, the the last <laughs> Stanley Cup won by the Toronto Maple Leafs in '67. All those great players, the Johnny Bowers, Tim Hortons, Frank Mahovliches, Davey Keon, et cetera, et cetera, will no longer be on the Stanley Cup. So, so yeah, it's one of the things. You just you, The trophy just can't grow so exponentially taller yeah. to keep everybody on because it would be totally unwieldy. Even now, it's three feet tall, and it's heavy, and, and it's, it's wonderful, but it's the perfect shape, it seems, right now to lift and to, to hold and to, to carry uh, if it was – Four feet, five feet, boy, oh boy, it'd be, it'd be difficult. So that's yeah. the reason that they retire the bands that they do. Wow, the great Montreal teams gone, Toronto yeah. almost gone, and there could have been a Vegas on there. Go figure. <laughs> well, wouldn't that have been nice? So I mean, I, I think yeah. Washington enjoyed every second, sure, as we know, sure. uh, every second of their celebration, and they certainly worked through the years too. But I just thought the story of Vegas, the Cinderella team, the first team. Unbelievable. For, for the National Hockey League to, uh, well, I don't know if they're the first because you have to go back, I right. guess, but to win it in their first year would just be an incredible story. Sure. They had such a great season. Sure. How did the NHL get the cup? So 1927, it became the uh, the sole property of the National Hockey League. Before that, I mean, there were many leagues that would challenge back and forth between themselves. So there was the predecessor to the National Hockey League, which started in 1917. The predecessor was the National Hockey Association. There were other other um, Eastern Canadian leagues as well who competed for the Stanley Cup through the years. Uh, for a while, just prior to, to 1927, there was the Pacific Coast Hockey Association uh, on the West Coast. I mentioned the Patricks earlier on. They were the ones behind that league and the teams that were involved in the league too. And they would they would be the Western champions playing against the Eastern champions for the Stanley Cup. So there were various leagues various teams that uh, competed it didn't become an nhl exclusive until 1927 and then from there on it's solely been that way but during the lockout in 2005 there was great discussion okay what do we do here Mm. do we allow it to be competed for by the by women's hockey by the next highest professional level which be the american hockey league interesting Uh, do we go back to the roots and make it an amateur competition and award it to somebody. But the trustees oversaw that and decided that they would, uh, they would not award a winner that year. And in fact, it's recognized that way on the Stanley cup as, as uh, 2005, um, no, no season played. So yeah, there've been lots of great discussions through the years, but right now it's a, an NHL trophy. Who knows as hockey grows in the rest of the world, will it be the NHL versus the KHL or will yeah. hockey develop in, in, in Asia, and will we uh, be facing off for it in some kind of a competition like the PCHA versus the NHL? We'll have to wait and see, but for the time being, it's all NHL. Sure, sure. Let's get back to Lord Stanley. After he left and went back to uh, England, did anyone from his family stay behind, or did they all go? No, they all left. Many of them had already gone back. Some of them were already going to school there, uh, getting their military training at that time. Uh, in England. So the older ones were already in England. The younger ones went with mom and dad to uh, to return to, to their estate in Liverpool and, and their offices in London, England as well. And, and so none were left. None were left behind. In fact, during the writing of the book, I tried to, to entice. Uh, I didn't have the money to do anything more than just suggest, but I thought, wouldn't it be great for either the the Baron Stanley of Preston or little Lord Stanley or the two of them, father and son mm-hmm. to come over. They've, they'd never seen a game before. Wouldn't it be great for them even to drop a puck at a Stanley oh, cup championship my. game and That'd be awesome. keep the family tradition going. And they said they were, they had great interest in that. The family is heavily involved in horse racing. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, yeah, you talk um, about that in your book a little bit that there, there yeah, is, so there, there's you know, horse the, racing, the, uh, Kentucky Derby, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the, the name Derby is actually pronounced Darby in, in uh, the United Kingdom, and it comes from Lord Stanley and his family as well. Um, 
but uh, they're heavily into horse racing and business practices and real estate and that sort of thing. Hockey is, they're aware because of, certainly just because of news and and social media, but also the book to some degree too. But uh, to this point, none have ever seen a a hockey game. Wow. That's too bad. Wow. Since, Since the days of Lord Stanley and his son's and daughter here in Canada. So it's, yeah, we'd like to see that change. It's been well over a hundred years. Let's go folks. It's time to, to fly over here, drop the puck for a game and go back home if you need to after the game <laughs> is over, but, uh, but do it. I just think it'd be great for the game and great for the legacy of the game as well. Did the people of Canada respect, like, did they have any feeling for Lord Stanley? Only in a hockey sense. There would be historians, uh, Canadian historical uh, scholars who, who would certainly be aware and would would have feelings, hopefully positive. I would think they would have positive feelings about Stanley's modest contributions to the country at that time. But uh, but other than that, it's just the it's just the uh, the hockey side of things. And as I mentioned at the very very beginning, you know, people really don't know. You know, they call it the Stanley Cup. Where the heck is who the hell is Lord Stanley? You know. Like I said, my mom, you know, thinking that Alan Stanley <laughs> donated the cup, she didn't know any better. So there's a vague recollection that there was a a, a person behind it back in the day, but uh, they wouldn't necessarily know that it was the Governor General of Canada in 1888 to 1893. So. Why do you think it's important, particularly for Canadians, to remember or know who Frederick Arthur Stanley was? Why should he be remembered? It's got to be more than just about the cup. Sure. Well, so at the time, so today, the governor general's role is largely ceremonial. It, it, it's appointed by the, in, in today's parlance, it'd be, uh, would be appointed by the queen, but, but by the monarch, the ruling monarch at the time from England, just to keep our ties alive. Now, many people don't believe that the monarchy should even have any, any role in Canadian history or politics or anything else, right. but that's a, a moot point for this discussion anyway. Um, but back in those days, you have to think that Queen Victoria was the most powerful woman in the world. Arguably, there may be others who come forward in other parts of, uh, parts of the world, but there was nobody more influential or more powerful. She, she held the throne for, what it was, 80 years or something like that. The colonies that were involved with, with, uh, with England were a good part of the world at that time. So to be appointed the Governor General of Canada was a huge honor, and it was rock star-like. When they traveled, they were revered because they were the next biggest thing to the queen. Huge, huge role, and and a huge popularity because of it. People would throng to, to see the train pull in because that was the biggest name in Canada at the time. The prime minister would have had a big role for sure, but the governor general was next to the monarch who was, was a, was rock star like in her own doing. So, so it was a huge role. It was a much more influential role, still an important role in Canada, but as I mentioned, much more of a ceremonial role today, still the queen's emissary um, like that. So I think for Canadian history, it's important to know um, we know some of the names, but sadly, most of the governor generals, the governor's general names are tied to things. There's the Grey Cup in, in Canadian football. Well, that was uh, Lord Grey was a governor general of Canada as well. Oh, interesting. We don't know very much about him other than the fact he donated a cup to trophy, uh, trophy to uh, football. Interesting. So it's, it's unfortunate that that is uh, the way that most Canadians would know their history with these names. Uh, they would know the prime ministers to some degree. They wouldn't necessarily know the governor's general, and I think it's important. But I'm just so glad that that because of his donation to hockey, his name carries on, and we all know either vaguely or passionately that Lord Stanley was the uh, was the impetus behind the Stanley Cup today. Well, I certainly hope this podcast hope helps to keep his memory alive and certainly educates everyone a little bit about who Lord Stanley was and uh, what he did for the country and that he uh, donated a cup that is still battled for quite, quite heavily every year. Kevin, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes again. What are you working on now? Anything? So many little things. I've got various projects that I'm juggling. Uh, 
One is I'm developing an indigenous program for the Hockey Hall of Fame, and and uh, it's it's been quite fascinating to to be involved with that. Still in its early days, but uh, mm-hmm. we'll introduce that to to uh, young students between the ages of ten and fifteen over the next uh, few months. So so doing that, uh, I don't have a book that I'm working on right now, but I just just had published uh, one last month called The Hall, which is the yep. The 75-25 anniversary of the Hockey Hall of Fame, 75 years since its inception, 25 years since it moved into its current location in downtown Toronto. So mm-hmm. doing some uh, some media for that and just uh, living, living a great life, enjoying my involvement with hockey and even, even a peripheral sense. It's all good, I'll tell you. Awesome. Well, again, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Once again, you've been a terrific guest, and I, I just can't thank you enough. Well, I thank you, and I thank you for keeping Lord Stanley's legacy alive, too. Like we said, his name will continue on for decades and hopefully for for centuries, but to to know why it's called the Stanley Cup is really important. So thank you very much for your role and for great research and great questions, too. Always enjoy speaking to you. Thanks, Kevin. Certainly a different take on a forgotten hero of sports. Sure. Frederick Arthur Stanley didn't play the game of hockey, but every April when the Stanley Cup playoffs start, his name is as big as it gets. In fact, the goal for almost every hockey player in the world is to play in North America for the chance to raise the Stanley Cup high over their head and drink from the cup that sits atop the famed trophy. And it all started when Lord Stanley, the Governor General of Canada, donated the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup to the best amateur hockey club in Canada. Once again, thank you to Kevin Shea for taking the time to visit with us on Sports Forgotten Heroes. His latest work, The Hall, is available anywhere you can order books. And please check out Amazon.com to see everything Kevin has written. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about a terrific football player who played professionally and was voted into the College Football Hall of Fame for his phenomenal exploits on the field at Indiana University and was the first African-American drafted into the NFL. We're talking about the great George Talaferro. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.